I'd like to open your Bible this morning to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. Jeremiah, chapter 18. I want to invite everybody to listen carefully this morning. I believe the Lord has a message for us. And our message begins in, in verse 1, when God asked Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house he wants to tell him something, and he wants to show him something. And that's where our story begins, and let's begin there. The title of the message is today, There Is No Hope. That's the title, but if you put a question mark at the end of it, it reads a little differently. It means there is no hope, because there are people you'll find in our message today who are telling themselves and discussing amongst themselves and have come to the conclusion that there is no hope. With regard to God, his promises, and what he said, many say, in one way or another, there is no hope. And so we counter that by saying, let me discuss that matter. There is no hope? Well, let's approach it that way. So we go to the potter's house in verse 1. And in verse 3, he said, I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to him to make it. Now let me stop right there and say this. Tucked away in this two verses here is a picture of the new birth. See, he didn't throw that marred lump of clay away because we were all marred. There was none of us that was right. We had to be made right. But he didn't throw that lump of clay away. He simply made it again. You got to like that. He made it again because that's his desire for you. The word marred means ruined. Well, it's translated in the Noah's flood in the day of that identified the flood, the people were corrupt. That is, they were ruined. And this is what the word marred means. This is what we once were. And God, who loves us, didn't want to throw us away. So the great potter, he begins to redo us again in the way that he wants us to be made. Now, that's what he saw, and this is what God said. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I had thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it not obey my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I had said that I would benefit it. The message here so far is that God is in charge of his creation. He oversees creation. And all through history, God has never let evil get so out of hand that it cannot be stopped. Judgments have come all through history against evil. Especially 
against God's people to correct them. God is interested in our salvation. God wants to bring us to the place at the end of our lives that he can say to us what he cannot say to others. He wants to say to you, well done, thou good and faithful. I see you without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. You have withstood the test. You have not fled and ran. You have stayed put. I have refined you. You're qualified. We're ready for heaven. Whereas others took all this for granted. It's just church. It's what we do as whatever brand of Christian we call ourselves. We attend meetings. We go somewhere. We do things. This is us. And yet, there has got to be more to it than that. And God, who looks at hearts, determines that he is going to change our lives because if he doesn't, he'll have to judge us. He says, when I speak evil against the people, if I look at them and I say, if you don't turn around, this is what's going to happen to you and you're going to be judged. He said, if those people repent and turn away from their evil and they turn to me and obey my voice, they won't receive that evil. And if I say, I want to bless all you people, I give you a Bible full of blessings. And if the people don't live the way he wants them to live, he said, they won't get the blessings. Now that's fair. That's fair because, you know, God gave me a will. It doesn't belong to anybody else. I am totally responsible in this life to make choices. The right choices to make that bring me into favor with God are the ones he shows me. The problem is when he begins to tell me, show me, whether it's in a sermon or a study or just praying or by some other revelation, when God begins to show me what he wants and I'm unwilling to do it or I want to change and alter that so it's more suitable the way I want to do it, then I am doing what the Bible calls evil. I'm not doing the way God wants me to do what he wants me to do. Take evil, for example. If my people who are called by my name, remember that, Second Chronicles 7? If my people that are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn what? From their evil ways. What could be evil about a religious congregation? It really comes down to very possibly just a casual indifference of what God said, assuming that if I do it the way I think I should, I'm okay. Now, I would call that evil because it is not what God wants us to do. So we have to keep examining ourselves to test ourselves to see how we are doing. Because you see, in verse 11, he said, Now therefore go to, speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I frame evil against you, and I devise a device against you. Now you're under judgment, but, he said, this is our long-suffering and gracious God. He offers us a way of escape. You know that God doesn't want to judge you? He offers you a way of escape so he doesn't have to. Now, whether we take it or not depends on you. But he said, verse 11, I frame evil against you. I devise a vice against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil ways and make your ways and your doings good. And they said in verse 12, 
What did they say? There is no hope. There's no hope. Maybe today they would say it, the hour that we're in now, looking back where I've been and who I've been around for the last 40 years, maybe a lot of them would say, we've heard that before. We haven't seen that work. We tried that once, but uh, it, it came up short, and it, we were really disappointed, lost, almost lost everything, or lost everything. Well, somebody died, or somebody was put in jail, or a marriage failed, and all, you know, we prayed all these prayers. We were taught to pray, you know, in the name of Jesus, and when, when you pray, believe. We did all that. It didn't work. So here I am now, you know, we know we're not doing good, Lord, and you just told us if you, especially you, who are called by my name, if you're not doing good, I'm going to give you a chance to do good. Now, if you don't want to do good, you're going to be judged. So turn away from your evil and turn to me. And they said, you know, it doesn't work. We've been so disappointed. Or we've lost half of our family. Our kids quit over this. We feel like in a lot of ways we've been misled. It was a fabricated message with a lot of splendor and flamboyance and all. Oh, we loved it and we went to church and woo! And now here we come today. It's like, what happened to all that? There's no hope. We don't even know who to turn to. Maybe if we just live good enough and live long enough and try hard enough, maybe they were right. If we just do more good than bad, we'll be all right. In the last days that we're in now, there is an attitude amongst church goers and non-church goers that they are not bad enough to go to hell. When it comes to heaven and hell, their view and version, as they have formed it in their own minds, in the imagination of their own heart, the way they look at God, they say, well, here's how we see it. If God is as good as he says he is, and he is marvelous and all of that, then none of us are bad enough to go to hell. I mean, we've never robbed a bank and hurt people or hurt children and blown up anything and caused death and destruction. We've never done that. I mean, we're not perfect, obviously. We mess around a little bit, maybe drink a little bit, say a few bad words, but come on, we're not that bad. And so consequently, there's this drawing back to arrest a kind of indifference to God that man has prepared. And we're no longer concerned about our tomorrows. We're no longer concerned about our salvation, whether or not we're serving God. It just doesn't matter anymore. And a lot of folks, when they hear these promises that God makes about whether there's healing or protection or prosperity or abundance or whatever God has promised, They've seen so little of it that it doesn't inspire them to anticipate that for themselves or hope for that or expect that. It's just like, yeah, well, whatever. Then we still go to church. I guess it's because we feel better about ourselves going to church. But as far as any lasting thing changing our life, it just doesn't seem to be. I'm talking about in the last days. It's like the inspiration that makes us happy. The word of God that makes us glad. 
the things that God has said that cause us to worship him seems to have waned and given place to something that's more akin to, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. How long have you been in church? 20 years, and you don't know. I don't know. So he's talking to his people. He said, now, that's not the kind of people that I've raised up. The people that walk with and serve God are not like this. Now, the world's like that, but my people aren't. Now, I want you to turn from your ways. I want you to turn back to me with your first love and all of the excitement that went with that. I want you to give it your best shot. It's a sacrifice, a daily living sacrifice of your life to serve God on his terms, whatever he wants. That's what I want. And I want you to do that with joy. And I want you to do it with exuberance and have peace about it and be glad that God has brought you out of the miry clay and given you something that is eternal in nature. Live like that's your heart. That's your joy. And yet, it seems like the anticipation of all of those things has waned and give way maybe to the weight of this world. Things we pray for, they don't get answered, and I don't know. Why is there no hope? Well, look at that verse 12. Why is there no hope? Well, they said, we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his own heart now devices the hebrew word for devices had to do with your thoughts how you reason how you reach conclusions with your thinking everybody does i mean how you view something that is said or offered how you figure it out look at it think about it that's what devices are it's a mental thing and the imaginations of one's evil heart you know the word imagination has to do with being stubborn it's a resistance thing so the way you're reasoning things out the devices of your mind is what's causing you to resist god can i say that your way of reasoning with god or about god has left you without the enthusiasm that it usually takes to pursue God, the absolute certainty of something that he's promised. Yes, this is what I want. We all want it. We all want something that's a sure thing. All of us do. It's what causes us to get up early and go to work and do things because there's something for sure out there. Now, when you begin to reason that maybe with God, We've been a little bit uh, too overboard with this. And, uh, you know, I, you know, you talk about God healing all you want to, but I've never seen an eyeball replaced. I've never seen a limb restored. I've never seen a new tooth made or something. And so you begin to, well, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I don't know about that. See, when you back off a little bit, you tend to back off a little bit more. And when you back off a little bit more, you have another kind of a hang-up or problem. You think, well, you know, that's... Next thing you know, the imaginations of your heart have made you stubborn. You're here, you're there, but you're not there. You do have eyes to see, but you're not seeing it. You have ears to hear, but, well, you're not hearing it. This was a cause of judgment in the days of the flood. God said in Genesis chapter 6, 
He said that before the flood, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that the thoughts and the imaginations of his heart was only evil continually. The way man was figuring things out and seeing things was not the way God said, but he was seeing it his own way. Let me say this again. Anything, any way that is not according to God's way is an evil way. It could be just a little thing, but if it's not according to God, it's evil. It cannot be blessed. God only watches over his word to perform it. Look in verse 15. He said, because my people hath forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity, and they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient past, to walk in a way that is not cast up and not established and built by the Lord. They want to do it their own way. Now, I've said this several times and talked about this, about why man is living this way and why man walks this way, why man doesn't want to do things God's way. You keep backing off a little bit. You keep convincing yourself you're not ready for that. And the next thing you know, you will forget God. When trouble comes and problems comes, when turmoil comes, Instead of that Holy Spirit given word to your attention, bring to your attention, didn't Jesus say he would bring all things to your remembrance? Instead of that bringing forth that word from God that you stored in your heart, you sort of set it aside and lost hope in it. And the Bible said that you can do that. You know there's a verse in Hebrews that talks about the word slipping. You should give the more earnest heed to the things you have heard. Nobody has ever told us that when God speaks to us, it was always what we wanted to hear. Certainly the blessings are water in the wine, walking on the water. I like that. But crucifying the flesh, taking up the cross, dying, being refined, suffering. Who likes that? But it's all part of the same package. Modern man has come up with the idea that, well, we've misled people with this stuff about the cross and stuff because that's not the kind of God the Bible depicts. The God of the Bible is a loving God. He is not against you. He just wants to love you. Your faults and failures don't keep him from loving you. He loves you anyway. I mean, you don't have to straighten up and fly right to be loved of God. God loves everybody. And going to church should be a time of enjoying his love. And we don't need to permeate this atmosphere with all the horrible judgments of sin. We don't need to be talking about all the things we got to deal with and tight, tighten up and get ready. The Lord's coming. Whoa. We don't need to hear that. We didn't come here to hear that. We came here to hear that we're all good people. God didn't say bad people. Uh, well, maybe one or two of us. But we brought us here to encourage us to enjoy life. The highest goal of man, the humanist said many years ago. Humanistic philosophy. The highest goal of man is to enjoy life, not serve God. As a Westminster 
confession was said, but as humanists said, oh, the highest goal of man is to enjoy life. You only live once. So let's talk about things that make us happy. We want to be comfortable with the presence of God. So let's be happy and comfortable. And so you come back and you begin to read a little bit on your own. You start reading some of these things about the kind of life we should live. That we get no encouragement to live such a way because some man, somebody, some system of man has put into the word of God, literally have rested the scriptures, causing the people to be misled. Some educated soul has said it's okay. Trust me, after all. And the people begin to take God for granted. Carrying the cross, that's just a verse. Overcoming, Jesus did that for me. I heard a faith teacher say that once. We don't have to overcome. Jesus did all the overcoming we'll ever need. You don't have to always make right choices. Like that man said many years ago, he said, if I die drunk in the arms of a bad lady, I'm going to heaven. I remember thinking, boy, that doesn't sound right. You die drunk in the arms of a bad lady, and God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That doesn't seem to work. Well, maybe we ought to preach that, but when you start preaching that, that's mislined too. I'm telling you, you all been here a long time. You haven't been a lot of other places, nor have I. But I grew up in the system of man. I know what man wants me to do with God and how he wants me to lay all of that aside. And when it comes to how things will work, we forget God. We go to the banks. It's the doctors and the banks and, the, and this is or that or the gun or the dog or whatever it is. Well, what about God? Well, you know, and then they say, well, you got to understand. What? What am I supposed to do as I read the Bible that says I'm to trust the Lord with all of my heart? I don't even know how to trust the Lord. Preacher, you've never taught us how to trust the Lord or even why. What are the consequences of not trusting the Lord? We don't even know. And God said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Or my people, as Isaiah said, they've gone into captivity. They're bound to a system and they can't get out of it by the ways of man. They're bound. They're held back. They're defeated. It's something that man has done. And God has allowed it. And now we're being warned. While there is time, you need to escape. Turn to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 through 4. Because verse 2 says, preach the system. Thank you. It means preach the word. Everybody knows what that means, don't we? Preach what? Preach means to herald, to proclamate, to proclaim. Preach the Bible. Preach the word. You can't preach it if you don't know it, so know what it says and then preach it. And you won't preach it right if you're not convicted about it, so study it, get convicted, and then preach it. All right, he said, preach the word for, he said, be this and in season, out of season. It's that important. 
4, verse 3, for the time will come. May I suggest that we might be in that time right now. For the time will come, the Bible said, when the people who hear the word, that word that you give, but the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Is it possible then that a great need in the last days which God will give is sound doctrine? Because we're talking about the end here. Somebody is going to make sure they're getting it right and that you're going to hear it right. Whether you believe it or not is your choice, but you're going to hear it right. It's going to be given to you right. Maybe not by the most eloquent way, but it's going to be given to you and it's going to be right. Now, what are you going to do with it? He says, the time will come they will not endure sound doctrine. And here's why. It goes back to what we said in Deuteronomy. But after their own lust, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Heap to themselves. They have a parcel of favorites. Heap to themselves teachers who will mislead them, and they want to be misled. They don't want to know the truth. And he said, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to what? Fables. As I understand, the, the Greek word fable can mean man's version or man's tales or fabricated stories, fabricated doctrines not the real thing but it sounds good it sounds good now go back to Romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 1 at the very end of that chapter verse 28 through 32 and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient or fitting. Being filled, he said, with all this and all of that and all these different kind of characteristics that identify the culture of the last days and the mindset and the personalities of man. These are all identified there. Like in verse 30, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, boasters, heady. Watch a sports program and listen to, you don't talk about how heady and boastful people are. Stick a mic in front of somebody's face. But we don't want to do that. You see the first two words in verse 31? This is the last days. You see the first two words in verse 31? Without what? Without understanding. Why? They obviously are religious people. Why do they not understand? Why is this message not clear? Why is it that God's word is clouded and is not inspirational? Should the word inspire us? You should be inspired. Why is it not, and I'm not saying you're not, but why is it not inspiring people? Why has the word become cloudy to a lot of people? Have they been misled? Has somebody misled people? Are they seeing it wrong? Well, of course that's part of the problem. But they like it that way because uh, 
I'm good enough to go to heaven and nothing I do will make me bad enough. But he said they're without understanding. And then you get to the last verse. They get down to that last verse. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the things but have pleasure in them that do it. You know why they have pleasure and you know why people are warped in their thinking and religious people are just religious, not spiritual. Verse 29, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Why? Because God is a constant reminder of change. When you look into his word, and you see him, you see what he has to say, you measure yourself by that, there's always more. There's always more work to do. And there's always this need to press in, to yield yourself again daily as a sacrifice, to undergo this constant cleansing and refinement of the one who came to save you, who also is a refiner's fire. He never leaves you alone. He will turn your interest from the things of this world to heaven. And you'll find that you don't always want to do that. And yet he is so insistent that because he loves you, he chastises you. To get your attention. God's going to get us in his kingdom. Let me ask you something. Why do we hope in God? Why do we anticipate what God said to be ours and for sure to come to pass. Why, why do we hope? Why is it that we are anticipating certain and expecting certain things to happen that God has said? Why? Because folks, there's nothing else. There is nothing else in Life that is sure but God. No man, no system of man has ever devised anything, has never come up with anything that he can guarantee you will work. No man. There is nothing he's ever said. Never happened. But God has given us his word. He's spoken to us in his word. Turn to Hebrews 6. Well, Brother Hamilton, as you well know, there's been a lot of disappointments in all those things I said a while ago. And I would agree with you. I have been around a lot of disappointments. I have had to listen to and try to deal with a lot of disappointments. And it's not easy on occasion to say, well, the problem is not God's. The problem's with us. Because that doesn't seem to bring any comfort. And I'll tell you what, folks, we are guilty and capable of setting God aside to please man. It's a hard thing to say, well, God hasn't given up on you, but it's the other way around. God hasn't failed. God hasn't changed his mind. He said, I'm the Lord, I change not. Well, then how can we know that the word's going to work for us? Well, look in Hebrews 6. Let's see if we can find something here. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. 
For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. Now, God's promise to Abraham gave Abraham something to look forward to, did it not? When God spoke to Abraham, he said, I have something I want you to have to accomplish to be. I have a blessing for you. I have something that I want you to do or to become. That's what he said. Now, if Abraham did not believe that would really work, Abraham would walk away from it. He might say, well, amen. That's good. Good sermon. Thank you. Praise the Lord. But it had no meaning to it. Because that next verse says that that it worked because, verse 15, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, which is a message in itself, as you know. But God said, look, Abraham, I'm giving you my word. I cannot point to something out there that you know is, is about as serious and sincere as it gets besides myself. God could swear by nothing greater. God could not say, well, I swear by... Creation. He made creation. You got to go beyond creation. I swear by the moon. Well, you even made the moon. He simply said there is nothing greater that God can put emphasis on as for assurance and surety of his word than himself. Malachi 3 said, I am the Lord. I cannot change. I cannot lie. I cannot say one thing and it be something else because his word and God are the same. They are immutable, changeless. He cannot change. See, people like you to give your word as as sure as you can. Like when we were kids, I'll tell you a secret if you promise not to tell. And we all love secrets and gossip. And, and so I promise I won't tell. But to put emphasis on the promise now, we can't just say I promise because you ain't nobody or you're not anybody. I want you to cross your heart and hope to die that you'll stick a needle in your eye. <laughs> I guess that generation's past, but that's what we used to say. Before somebody tell you a secret, You had to cross your heart, hope to die. I'll stick a needle in my eye. You gave an oath. You gave an oath that if I repeat what you said to anybody, my eyes will have needles in them, but it won't matter because I'll be dead. (laughs) (laughs) And so... You go into court of law. What do they tell you to do? Because we want your absolute guarantee. Swear by what? You lay your right hand on the Bible or one of the hands, whichever you do it. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I don't know how they get by with that today. In a government courtroom, they mention God. How dare they mention God? But this still the highest level of swearing there is, is to God. I swear to God, people say, 
They say it all the time. They get pulled over for speed, and I swear to God. They don't even know who God is. They haven't been to church enough times to even know how to spell God. But they know it means something in society because God is the highest of whatever is high. And so God puts this kind of emphasis on the words you're holding in your lap. There is no greater verification of God's word than the fact that he said it. He says that about no man, no publication of man, only himself. He said his word back in verse 13 again. He said God could swear by no greater. He swear by himself in verse 16. For men verily swear by the greater like over on the Bible. And an oath for confirmation to them is the end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it with an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And no man in this life will ever be steadfast and secure without that. Nobody. The only thing you can latch on to that has eternal security to it is the word of God that God has spoken. There is no other word no other heady writings, teachings, or anything else that God will give that to, only himself and his word. And you think about that this morning. The book you're holding in your lap is that word to you and to me. And yet we can read it without a whole lot of affection. I think there's something wrong. See, the promise is sure. Didn't he say the promise was sure? And like in verse 13, the promise was sure. Did he say in verse 18 and 19 that it's impossible for God to lie? Then you're required to believe that every word in that book is sure. It's the real deal. It'll never change. It'll never mean something less. And time, cultures, generations will never change what the Bible said. It is forever settled in heaven. It will never change. What it said thousands of years ago, it is still saying today. Nothing has changed. Think of it. People say, well, when is God going to do something? He has already done something. When he raised Jesus from the dead, he did everything that needed to be done. It was a confirmation of his announcement. This is my lamb. He's going to take away the sin of the world. And when he died, they were so disappointed. And God raised him from the dead. When they realized that, they were so glad. Because now everything God said about him will come to pass. He is our blessed hope. And he is coming back. And as I said the other night, every man that has this hope in him, he'll purify his life. Because it has great meaning. It has great meaning because God said it. It cannot change. 
And if there's 8,000 promises in the Bible, then 8,000 times God has said, you can trust me with this. This cannot fail. And people argue, oh, well, if it doesn't fail, why? Let God be true. I had that sermon right up here. David is a little strong, so I put it up. Let God be true. And every man that disagrees with God, every philosophy that disagrees with God, that varies from God a little bit, let him be a liar. I have been given a word as the absolute surety of all my tomorrows plus eternity. It's called the Bible. It pertains not only to tomorrow, but it pertains to right now. Right now, today. He will. He has promised. I can do all things through Christ and so forth. All these wonderful promises that should make us glad. He hath made me glad. He has filled my heart with praise. It should be like that because we have as an anchor of our soul the anticipation of the surety of God's fulfillment of his word for us in this life. And yet, Religion across America is getting dead. It's dying because the world is taking over. The glamour, all the junk in this world. Listen to this. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should change his mind or take it back. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? There is no hope. Who are you talking to? Hope. We of all people have hope. We have something that is so sure that it drives us. Something that has been set before us, God has given to us that God has said he will do, that's what motivates us. If we didn't have that, we'd just sit in here and have a little quiet hour and go home. It would be meaningless. Forever, O Lord, Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Peter talks about the word of the Lord endures forever. I'm not talking about some idea. I'm talking about a living word. The Bible. A compilation or putting together of the words that God has given to man. By over 1,500 years, by all kinds of different authors, from prophets and priests and farmers and kings, princesses, women. He put all this together. And it meshes. It fits. And this is what God watches over to perform. He won't make it work for you. Nobody had the promises better than the Jewish people. And how many times did they die and were they judged because they disregarded God? But God didn't let them disregard him long because every time they started doing that, he warned them. He sent Jeremiah. I'm reaching a verdict against you people, he said. You have forgotten me. You have turned away from me. You're doing things that I told you not to do. 
Now you got idols in your life. You got the world system that's controlling you. It's got your money. It's got your time. It's got your affection. It's got your energy. Everything is outside of the church now. You're not finding your peace and your joy in what God is saying now because something has happened. The things that should make us happy are the things that God has said because that is the only thing in this life that is sure. God can't lie. Listen, time, the earth, creation, the ticking of the current clock right now. Did you know that everything is under the control of the Word of God? How many times? Actually, I counted five, I think. Five times in the New Testament where it says all things happen that the Word of God might be fulfilled. When God spoke many years ago, and said, this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen. I'm in charge of the earth. I'm a sovereign God. Everything is in my control. Nothing is outside of my control. I rule in the kingdom of men. He proved that. All the things that are happening as I'm speaking here and you're sitting there right now, it's ticking, click. It's getting closer to the end. And when the end comes, everything will happen just like God said it would. Because he is in marvelous control of all creation. You have a will. You get to make choices. You'll never be able to make a choice that will keep God's word from coming to pass. That's the word of God. That's what he's given to us. How mighty is that? It's going to be. Remember what... Paul said it when he was shipwrecked in Acts 27, and they were throwing stuff off the ship. Anyway, the ship crashed, but everybody was saved. And Paul said in Acts 27, he said, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. He said, I believe God that it shall be, even as it was told me. How can you be so sure, Paul? Because God said it. Yeah, but now I've heard God said a lot of things that didn't happen. They all lied. Because if God said it's going to happen, it is going to happen. If God said he will heal your body, he will heal your body. Now, you may not believe that, and therefore it didn't work. God has conditions. But what he said works. You may have a poverty spirit this morning. I don't know. Not my business to look at your checkbook. But that can all change because God said he would bless you going out, bless you coming in. Everything you put your hand to will prosper. That cannot fail. You hear me? That cannot fail because God said it. If God said it, it has to work. If God said it, it has to work. It cannot fail. Not a single thing God has ever said fails. In Luke 1 and verse 37, it simply says, For with God nothing is impossible. But in the Greek language, it literally says that no word of God is void of power. The Montgomery New Testament says that no word of God 
is void of power. No thing. The word for thing is harema. It's word, means word. No word from God is void of power. The only thing that can keep God's word from working in your life is unbelief. That's why my people are destroyed. They've heard it, but they have never wrapped faith around it. It's never become real. And nothing is real unless you believe it. Faith is a substance of what? Of things you hope for. The reason you expect things to happen is because you believe it's going to happen. This is what anchors us to Jesus. This is what gives us that motivation to seek and to grow and to walk and do. You throw this away, you have nothing. When you walk after the imaginations of your own evil heart, all you can do in life is struggle, have turmoil, and be judged. You can't do well. It just isn't going to work. He watches over his word to perform it. Listen to what Albert Barnes, a commentator, said about his word being forever settled in heaven. He said, the meaning here is that the word, the law, the promise of God was made firm, established, stable in heaven, and would be so forever and ever. What God had ordained as law would always remain the law, and what he had affirmed would always remain true. What he had promised would forever be sure. I stand here today telling you this. Believe what God said in his word. Don't judge God on somebody else or what happened to your anybody's. What has God said? That's what he watches over to perform. And if he said it, he'll make it good. Didn't he say that? So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return how? Void, empty. But he said his word shall accomplish that which he pleases, his word shall prosper the thing whereto he sent it. That has to work. That cannot fail. If that fails, God fails. There's got to be believing. You've got to have faith. But don't ever blame God for your failures. Don't blame God for your mistakes. The best thing you can do is get on your face and ask for mercy and grace. As a little child would believe what mom and dad tells them. Take God at his word. That if God says something is so, this something is so. Let me ask you something. What more can God give to us than his word? What do you have without it? An idea? What good is an idea if it's fabricated in the human mind? What good is the loftiest ideas or opinions? that the smartest creatures on the earth have come up with. What good is any of it? There is no eternal value to any of that stuff. You can't count on any of that. An insurance company can tell you, well, now you're protected. That is not the truth. Well, I have life insurance. You can still die. We have fire insurance. Your house can still burn down. 
That piece of paper and that promise from some institution can't protect you. You think it can? God could. Oh, well, here we go again. Yes, right. Let's go again. No evil shall befall you. No plague of night. Well, he gives his angels charge over you. They'll keep you in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I will say of the Lord, he, 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 he. Then God finishes our assurance policy by saying, because he has set his love upon me, he goes ahead and finishes by saying, and with long life will I satisfy you. Well, you know, a lot of people, I don't care if the world dies at the age of nine. The word of God is still true. God cannot lie. Somebody, <clears throat> somebody is going to believe it. Somebody is going to end their life with the testimony that God did what he said he would do. I smarted many times in life. I had many struggles, you'll say. I hit many a wall. There were many dark moments in my life and little dark rooms that I didn't know how I would ever get out of. And yet, the only thing I had was the Word. I had nothing else. I can't count on anybody else's. Well, the president said, I don't care. Well, the Pope said it. I really don't care. <laughs> well, the patriarch of some something said. I don't care what any of them said, folks. What I do care about is what does God say? And you've got those sayings in your lap this morning. You're holding the book. It is God's promises and his word to you. And the only reason it won't work is because you didn't believe it. See, and that's hard to say. No, it's not hard. I can say it again. That's just how easy it was to say it. The fact of the matter is we need to tighten up. All of us. Listen, God's going to work some wonderful miracles here real soon. You'll hear it. Because he's faithful. Because something about our clutch is going to get on that word, and we're going to grab a hold of that, and we're going to hold on to it. Everything is going to respond to the word of God. From the going down of the sun to the rising of the sun, everything is under control, Hebrews 1, of the word of God. And everything is orchestrated by the word of God. How far are you from Hebrews Chapter 1. You're not very far, are you? Look at verse 3. Talking about our Lord, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Jesus is a visible representative of the invisible God. God is spirit. He has no form. You cannot see him. But he has manifested himself to us in human form like you. He was made like unto us. And it says about him, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, notice the next part, and upholding all things. How? By the power of his word or the word of his power? Which one is right? 
Do they mean differently if you say them differently? Upholding all things by the word of his power or his power is expressed in his word, the word of his power, either way is good enough for me. Upholding all things by the power of his word. And we have problems in our life. We have times of difficulty that come up and we say, when's God going to do something? Read it. What's he said he would do? This is what he watches over to perform. That's what he said he would do. That's what he's promised. He can make no greater promise than that because that is a promise from God. And he cannot lie and God cannot change. So let me go back as we come to a close. Jeremiah 8. You don't have to turn there again, but in verse 12, they said, There is no hope. There isn't. There isn't. There is no hope. You mean there's nothing that we daily can get up and look forward to? A sure thing? Is there anything every day when I get out of bed and start my journey through the day, is there something out there that I have that I can look forward to, which I can count on, which makes me fearless? Do I have a promise from God that he shall give charge to his angels and they will keep me in all my ways? How do I know that'll work? Because God said it. Not because I can see angels, not because I've experienced it. I have experienced it all the time. I take it by faith. I believe it. If he said he would do something, all I can do is believe it. That's all I got. But where's that faith come from? Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing from the word. And your faith is because something in that word has become real and certain to you. And you're holding on to it. That's what faith does. That's the difference between the glad of heart and the sad of heart. Faith. A simple thing called faith. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. I believe you are. And if I believe you are, then I have to believe what you said you are. And if you said you're the Lord that healeth me, then I have to believe that. That's not an option. I don't have the right to say, well, I don't really care anything about being healed. That's what he wants. That's his will. How about blessing you? Well, let me try this. Out. How about blessing y'all over here then? As you go out the door, as you come back in, everything you put your hand to, everything, all the time, every day. And even on a rainy, cloudy, in the corner of the roof type day. Something looms up bigger than all of that and says, in spite of all the depression the devil brings against you, I will rejoice in the Lord. God's promises have never given way to rainy days. Somebody is going to believe it. Somebody's going to greatly benefit from it. And somebody's going to have this joyful testimony in their life that God can be trusted. Only because he said it. If all we have in this life 
is what Jeremiah was talking about. If all we have in this life are these imaginations and lofty ideas that we picked up in, of all dumb places, college, and we come out of here with this inspired pursuit of life, one day you'll hit a wall and you realize you've been lied to your whole life. Because the only one that'll keep you from winding up like that is God. But somebody talks you out of that. Now come to him, humble yourself. Lower yourself. Admit he's right and admit you're wrong. Start at ground zero. Start from scratch. And let the heavenly potter make a new vessel out of you. And realize that when he's done with you and you look like he wants, he's still got to put you in the furnace. And it's never been fun to get in the furnace. But it's necessary. And he puts you in there. He says, now you endure hardness for a season here because when I get you out of there, you're going to be a vessel of honor and a vessel of praise. And I'm going to put you in a prominent spot. And I'm going to honor your life. Just trust me. So they said, in spite of all of this, we have no hope. There is no hope. In closing, turn to Psalms 119, verses 49 and 50. This is ours this morning. There is no hope? Question mark. Read this. This works for somebody. It worked for this guy. I'm not saying everybody has the mindset this guy had, but here's the way it can be. All of you. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast what? Does your Bible say caused? If it doesn't say caused... Get rid of it. Buy you a Bible that says caused. Remember the word unto thy servant on which thou hast caused me to what? Do you see the relationship of the word and hope? It's the word of God that alone has assurance and certainty of fulfillment. Why? Because God who cannot lie is the one who said it. Verse 50, this is my comfort today in my affliction. For thy word has quickened me. It means the same in the old as it does in the new. Quickened means to give life to. Life. Thy word has quickened me. I love to tell the story. There's life in it. Sing them over again to me, boring old words of law. No. Even though you hear them the 150th time, they're still fresh. They never lose their crispness. They never are stale. They're never stagnant to a soul that has learned the meaning and the value of it. It's God's word to us. And he said, thy word hath quickened me. Look at quickly, verse 81. Verse 81. My soul fainteth for thy salvation. It seems like sometimes it ain't going to work, but what? But I hope in thy word. Look at verse 114. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. So we come to a conclusion today. 
The problem in the world is not with some failure of God to draw back from what he has promised and not do it. God has not said, well, in the last days, I will not do the miracles and signs and wonders I did in the early church. I will not prosper them in the last days or heal them like I used to because I've given doctors and jobs to people for both of those things. That sounds reasonable to people that don't believe the Bible. But you come back and you say, no, that's, that's not true. That's not true. Because if you don't believe what God says, you're going to find yourself despondent, depressed, in some dismal mindset. Sort of like Psalms 42. Verse 5. Maybe this is what the Spirit of God is saying to a lot of Christian people who've heard the truth. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Is it possible for you to have a conversation with yourself? Well, think, here's a guy, Thomas, having a conversation with himself. Part of him's right and part of him's wrong, it seems. He says to himself, let me pray like this is the spirit where God hides his word, which only works if you give way to it. You can hide it here, but it doesn't mean you'll do it. You've got to be willing and um, obedient, all right? So, in light of the circumstances, a man is coming under the gun, feeling the weight of difficulty and the uncertainty of success. So he says, hey, up there, a mind, head, why are you so disquieted? Why is it that you're cast down? Look at you moping around. Listen to what you're saying about all those negative things. You can't, it won't be, what are we going to do? I don't know what. Why are you talking like that? You've only heard the word 40 years. What's wrong here? Something's wrong. Why are you so listless when it comes to worship and response to God? Have you given up on reading? Have you given up on praying? Have you given up on trying? Your spirit talks to you. Hey, so, why are you cast down? Why are you so disquieted? We want to be released. you got to give place to us with your mouth and your mind. Hey, we want out. We want a cheerful countenance. What's wrong? What's wrong with me? He said in verse 42, he said, Hope in God. Set your affection upon things above. Give way with your mind to the reality of the certainty that God who said it will do it. Anticipate it happening. Come to church expecting something to happen. Don't just leisurely plop into a seat. Well, I wonder how long he'll preach today. As long as he has to, I guess. Believe it. Oh, so why are you so disquieted? That's not a compliment. 
Hope in God. Hope in God, he said, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance. How many of you have a countenance? Five of you. All the rest of you do too, you just don't know it. Your countenance is this thing, the expression of your face and who you are. That's your countenance. Sad or glad. Now, in closing, last verse, Colossians. Colossians 1 and verse 23. Here's what he says in the New Testament with regard to hope. Yep, hope. Well, verse 22 said, you're going to be presented blameless and unreprovable and holy in his sight. We mentioned this verse the other day. And you think, how can that be? Because God said it. That's how. But the condition is, if, verse 23, if, if you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, and be not moved away from the hope, from the hope of the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? The hope of the gospel is not just your final salvation, but it pertains to everything that includes salvation right now and tomorrow. And the surety of it, the absolute certainty of all of this coming to pass is the fact that God said it. So let's preach that. Amen. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, bless your word to the people. Give it to us, Lord, as you would give it to any generation and any people at any time. Make us to know your way. Make us to know your will. Cause us to hope. Let us see the big picture. Give us that expectation that when we come to church, we bring that with us. And our mouth will make a joyful sound. We shall be blessed upon this earth. Now I'm asking you for your healing graces to confirm this word this morning by applying healing into the bodies of all those sitting here this morning who need it. Let it be a testimony that in the name of Jesus, you're doing your work. Those that have trouble wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, I ask you, Lord, to give them a word. Let that word be given to their hearts about parenting, about their jobs, about everything. Lord, minister to us. Cause us to hope. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.